Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, just a word of introduction. This is actually a uh, monumental night for our Monday night class. Uh, first and foremost, that we're doing it on a Wednesday. And more importantly is that uh, we've been talking about inviting the ladies to participate in what we do on Monday nights. And uh, thank God I'm glad it was able to materialize at least uh, this special edition right before Purim. I must say that I have a great fondness to the Monday night group. Uh, we've, got, uh, we've gotten very close. The closest connection that a human being can have is through Torah. And there's a great bond between our souls. The people that come to the Monday night, it's not a class, it's a shiur. Shiur is a different level. And uh, as difficult it is for me to travel, I have a busy schedule back in Brooklyn, they're keeping me busy. And uh, I carve out the time happily in order to make it uh, to this class. I believe the members are sophisticated and they're intellectual and they're bright and they get it. Therefore, as a, as a rabbi, it's always a pleasure to speak to people that can understand the level of the dirash. So again, I'd like to, uh, <clears throat> I'd like to thank the men for allowing uh, us to share these Devre Torah with the ladies here tonight. And I hope this won't be an exception. I hope that this can be a, um, from time to time we can have these, uh, these meetings together. Um, it's incredible to see what's happening in, in deal in general. It's no longer, as you always know it, but it's no longer a, uh, a summer place, it's a winter place, and it's a very big winter place. Thank God Torah is flourishing and buzzing in the yeshivas and the Torah and the people. And uh, I'm glad that Lawrence Avenue Synagogue, Oher Yaakov, has a chilek, a big chilek in this, in this revolution and renaissance that's taking place here at the Jersey Shore. Well, I came to talk about Purim. And uh, I must say, in preparation to the class, and I'll tell you exactly how this class came to me, step by step. So I opened up the Megillah like I do every year. It's the same 10 chapters, nothing changed. But always new things pop up and different ideas. And it's the same characters. Right away, bingo, Ahasuerus is in the first Pasuk. And then you got his miserable wife, Ashti. And then you got all the advisors, Karshena, Shetan, Admata, Tarshish, Meris, Marcena, Mabuchan, Gehinam, all of them are there. And then you have, you know, the Tzadikim, Mordechai, Queen Esther, you got the guards, Biktam Bateresh, you have some, uh, some uh, characters that have cameo appearances, a guy called Hatach, whatever his purpose was. At the end, you got a guy called Harbona, we know the, we know the cast. It's the cast of Purim. And then you have the villain, because you can't have a story without a villain. But what's the holiday going to be without a villain? So the, the villain of Purim, of course, is Haman with a capital H. And he's the one that's going to have a very bold idea to commit genocide in one day. Hitler gave himself six years. But Haman was very aggressive and he wanted to just figure out the final solution of the Jews in one day. That means Monday morning there's Jews, Tuesday morning they're eliminated. 
And uh, we know Haman to be an ardent anti-Semite. He's actually from the descendant. He comes from a long line of anti-Semites. His grandfather was Agag. Agag's grandfather was Amalek. And Amalek's grandfather is Esav. So, I mean, it, uh, it runs in the family. This is, uh, it's, it's in his genes. He has the dominant anti-Semite gene. And this is the way, this was Minhag Avotin. This is the Minhag of his fathers. And if anybody asks himself, when we talk about the characters of Purim, in our mind, just because we don't ask questions, we assume he's the most obvious character. And he's, he's the one that belongs because he's the one that the story revolves around. It's his decree. And then the whole story is about undoing his decree. So Haman is the, is the centerpiece. He's the ace of spades. And then I'm thinking to myself, hold it. Does Haman belong in this episode? I'll tell you why. We have four exiles. We have Galut Bavel, that's Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first temple. He sends us into Babylonia. It was a short exile, only lasted 70 years. At the end of the 70, that's when Parasu Madai entered, that's when Hashverosh enters. And it's a short stint. And then we build the second temple. And then 250 years into that, Yavan comes in. That's Antiochus. That's Hanukkah, the Hashmonaim. And we survive that one. And then the temple is destroyed. That's the second temple. And then we enter what's called Galut Edom. We're still in it now. We're pushing 2,000 years of this exile. This is the longest exile. It's, it rivals all the other three combined. And it's a miserable exile. A lot of bloodshed. And it's called many names, either Galut Edom, Galut Esav, Galut Romi. Basically, this is the exile that belongs to Rome, which started the destruction. And Rome is a direct descendant of Esav, Amalek, and all those guys. So actually, the Galut of Haman is this exile. He belongs, he belongs here. And by the way, he showed up here. The rabbis tell us Hitler, is a descendant of Esav and Amalek. I don't think anybody doubts the modern day Amalek is Hitler and his cohorts, which is Haman, the modern day Haman. But what is he doing in Parasumadai? It's not his item. He's not Persian, he's not Median. So he makes. <clears throat> I, I would say an uninvited appearance into a galut that doesn't belong to him. Now, he's got 2,000 years to, to abuse us, and he's, and he's done it. Haman belongs in exile four. What is he doing in exile two? Now, if you're going to tell me about it, Rabbi, you need an anti-Semite. Ahasuerus doesn't need any help. The Gemara says that Actually, Ahasuerus was probably a bigger anti-Semite than Haman. So you don't need him. Ahasuerus can make the trouble and make all the decrees and we'll get saved and we'll eat Haman Tashim and we'll have holiday. So my question is, I mean, this is the beginning of a, 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 a question that sounds so strange. What, what, what was Rabbi Mansur's question tonight? What is Haman doing in Megillat Esther? What? He, he, he has to be there. What, what's everybody else doing there? It's his Megillah. And I'm saying no. Who invited him? 
Now, not that Haman is such an ethical guy that needs an invitation, but nonetheless, think for a second. It's not Galut Edom, it's not Galut Amalek, it's not Galut Romi, it's Galut Parasumadai. He doesn't belong. How did he get there? That's the question that I came to ask tonight. I'll give an answer. I'll wish you good luck, happy holiday, and I'll be on my way. Very simple, uh, very simple uh, format today. Not complicated at all. And I have to tell you, I don't, when I open up the Megillah, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I don't know where the attack is going to come from, where the Hadush is going to come from. But this is the question that hit me. So now I've got to figure out an answer. So I said to myself, and I'm telling you exactly how I came up with this. I said, if I'm going to take the story of Purim and bring it to the laboratory, I have a laboratory in Brooklyn where I analyze uh, these things, and I need to put Purim under the microscope, uh, I need to find the DNA of Purim. I need to find where it starts from, the chromosomes. Because when you're in the laboratory, they don't look at the blue eye. They look at the DNA that made the blue eye. And they look at the genome. And then they can figure out everything about the eye. So if I want to study Purim and make analysis, I need to find the roots of it. Where's the first location of it? And then I can take it in the, on the, uh, uh, in the, in the plasma level and start to break it down and look at the molecules of it and the atoms and see it. In its, uh, in its raw state. So the question then is, where is the first origins of Purim? Now, I know I have a big challenge at me because it's a rabbinical holiday. So it's not like you're going to find it in the Torah. There is no Parashat Purim. And I looked in the whole Torah, that's why I'm late tonight, Hashverosh's name is now written once. And... Uh, my, my hunch tells me, however, it's got to be somewhere in the Torah Purim because the Torah is the blueprint of creation. And anything that happens to us nationally as a people has to be in the blueprint. So I don't care if it's a rabbinical holiday. So what? It's a major part of Jewishness, the holiday and miracle of Purim. So therefore, where in the blueprint, meaning here, the five books, where would I start... Uh, digging to start finding out where Purim is, is lying around. Now, if I could just locate it, then already I know exactly where to start bringing the heavy equipment and start digging. But first, I have to locate it. So I'm going to tell you what I did. I said to myself, is there a perashah in the Torah that has similarities and commonalities and semblance to Megillat Esther. So I said, well, what happened in Megillat Esther? Well, there's a man called Mordechai, he's a big tzaddik. And at one point, the king takes off his ring, gives it to Mordechai, and makes him the prime minister, the viceroy, Mishneh Lamelech. Did that ever happen in history before? And I say, yes. As they say in French, déjà vu all over again. It happened to Yosef. Yosef is in Egypt, and the pasuk says almost verbatim, the king Paro takes off his ring, 
and gives it to Yosef and makes him the viceroy, the prime minister. But it's, a, it's only one similarity. Eh, it's a coincidence. Nothing to get excited about yet. And I said to myself, wait. Something happened to Mordechai. He did a big favor for somebody, hoping that that person would remember the favor. And the guy who he does the favor to forgets the favor. Mordechai does a favor for the king. I mean, Mordecai saved the king's life. That's not a favor. That's, I mean, he saved his life. You would assume that the king would remember Mordecai immediately. Instead, the king forgets Mordecai, but it was actually to Mordecai's benefit because by the time he remembers him, it's at the most opportune time where B'nai Yisrael need that favor to be called in. Where else in history do we see a tzaddik does a favor for somebody to be forgotten and only later on remembered and then the king rises that person to great power? Yosef. Yosef is in prison. He interprets the dream of the Sarah Mashkim of the butler and he just tells the butler, I'm not asking for anything, just don't forget me. And of course, he can't trust the Goyim. The butler forgets him. After he saved his life. Only to remember it at a later date when it actually would be better off for Yosef. And that's his rise to power. So Yosef again and Mordechai share the same, same storyline. Where in Tanakh do we see that somebody's identity was unknown, and at a certain point, the tzaddik or the tzaddiket announces their identity to the shock of everybody. Well, in Megillat Esther, we have Queen Esther. Her identity was unknown. En Esther magedet et amavet molata. Ahasverosh doesn't know her true identity. And all of a sudden, at a certain point, Esther comes to the party and says, I am Esther, I am Jewish. Whoa, and that is my nation. It's a great revelation. Almost to the T of what happened with Yosef. The brothers don't know his identity, and at a certain point, he reveals, and he Yosef, and the brothers, the brothers are, are dumbfounded, and Hashverosh is, is, is dumbfounded. Well, he was dumb already, but he became dumbfounded. So I start to say to myself, these are three coincidences. Is it possible that maybe the story of Purim has its origins in Yosef? So I made some more analysis, and I start to look at the text, because that's where all the magic is in the text. If you don't have a homash in front of you and words in front of you, then you're not telling God's story. You're telling your own story. You have to look at the text. And I see when Yosef was nominated to be the finance minister. So he gives advice to Paro. And the Pasuk says, and I quote, I'm in Perek Mem Aleph, Pasuk 34. Yaseh Paro. Paro should do the following. V'yafked pekidim. He should appoint officers. 
ויקבסו את כל אוכל, and should collect all the food, יפקד פקידים ויקבסו. Those words don't appear too much in Tanakh, but if you open up Megillat Esther, when Asferosh is getting the advice to make the beauty pageant, the advisors say the exact same word. V'yefked ha-melech pekidim v'yekbesu et kol na'ara. There you go. I didn't say Haman, no, no guns yet. And then I noticed, that there's one word that's only written twice in the entire Tanakh. Once in the story of Yosef and once in Megillat Esther. Do you remember when Yosef was holding himself back? He wanted to reveal himself to the brothers that he had to control himself. The Pasuk says, Vayit Apak. Vayit Apak means he had to control himself. And when Haman walks by Mordechai, and Mordechai doesn't bow, and Haman wants to kill him on the spot. But then he controls himself. Vayit'apak Haman. So members of the jury, I presented uh, not all my evidence, but most of the evidence. And uh, my theory then is that if we're going to analyze the story of Purim, <laughs> we must actually analyze it in the story of Yosef. And if we could figure out the story of Yosef, then we might get some answers on Purim. However, being that I, I do this often, give classes, I'm able to sense the feeling of the members that are sitting in front of me. And I feel a very strong uh, skepticism especially some of the ladies are saying, who does he think he is? He comes along now and he has a, a theory and he's going to try to tell us that somehow Purim is connected to Yosef because he found some, some corollaries. I mean, he's not a Tana, he's not an Amora. I mean, good guy from Brooklyn, but I mean, what is his credentials now? Are we obligated to accept this guy over here? that now all of a sudden he's going to blow up our whole notion and start telling us that Yosef has something to do with Purim. We're doing this for 50 years, we never heard this. And now you can tell, oh, because you got two words that are similar. Okay, I don't know what that means. Uh, that gives him a right now to start making, <clears throat> making up his own theories. That's the feeling I'm getting. And I was ready for it. I got the same feeling in Brooklyn, don't worry. <laughs> it's the feeling of who does he think he is? So, I brought with me tonight the smoking gun. It's right here. Now you don't have to take my word anymore. Now you're going to have to deal with the Gemara. The Gemara is in Talmud Babli, Megillah, page 16b some context. So here the Gemara is talking about when Yosef revealed himself to the brothers, and now he's going to give his brothers some souvenirs. And to each one of the brothers, he gives them a, a suit, a new suit, Egyptian cotton. It's a great gift. 
And then the Gemara says, when it comes to his brother Binyamin, Binyamin gets five suits. And the Gemara right away jumps and says, what? If anybody knows the damage of favoritism, it's Yosef. And now he's going to commit the same crime that his father did? Because Yosef got a ketonet pasim, a couple of extra inches of, uh, of, of, of cloth, the brothers resented him. And now Yosef is going to commit the same avon, he's going to give Binyamin five times? So the Gaon Mevilna says, no, Yosef didn't do that. The value of the one suit was a thousand bucks. The five suits were $200 each. So everybody's getting the same, the same net value. It's the same thousand bucks. It's just, he's getting, uh, he's getting a dollar and he's getting, uh, he's getting four quarters. It's the same thing. So then the Gemara says, well, if it's the same value, why then not give Binyamin one like everybody else? Why does he get five? Gemara says, Amara Binyamin. Interesting, the rabbi's name is Binyamin. And he's talking about Binyamin. Bariefet. Remez Ramazlo. Yosef now was giving a, a hint, an allusion to, event, to an event that hadn't happened yet. That Binyamin is going to have a descendant from him many years down the line. That's going to uh, um, uh, be sent out in front of the king. Wearing five royal garments. As the Pasuk says. And therefore, Mordechai at the end of the story, wears five garments of the king. And therefore, Yosef is hinting to Binyamin, guess what? The reason why I'm giving you five is because one day, somebody from your direct family, your great, 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 is going to wear five garments. And incidentally, that's one of the pesukim that we read out loud. So everybody, when they read this Gemara, they're so dazzled by, wow, just like Binyamin got five garments, that's a precursor to Mordechai. Incredible. And they're looking at Binyamin and Mordechai, and it's dazzling. But you know what I see in this Gemara? Who is the first man to reveal to us that there's going to be a Purim? Yosef. Yosef was on to Purim a thousand years early. He's the one that's telling us, hey, and I'm sure the brother said, what are you talking about? Who's Mordecai? Hey, let me tell you the story. A story that didn't happen yet. That means the earliest rabbinical source that we have for Purim is Yosef's revelation to the brothers. And that's not me talking that's Rabbi Binyamin Bariyefet talking, and he has the credentials, and therefore your skepticism is unfounded. <laughs> now you have to accept what I said. So now, take this Gemara, and plus all the stuff that I said, now all of a sudden my stuff means something. Because indeed, the Gemara is saying, the origin of Purim is Yosef.
I rest my case. Okay, that, that took a long time to establish, but it's, it's a key part of this class. See, that's, that's the way we do it. First, we have to find out what we're going to put under the microscope. Now we need to put Yosef there, and if we could start to enlarge and, and start to see what's going on underneath, we might get some answers on what's going on on Purim. And hopefully we'll be able to learn some practical lessons for ourselves. Here's a, a well-known Midrash. The Midrash is in Parashat B'Shalah. So this Midrash is talking about the Parashat we're going to read this Shabbat, Parashat Zachor. Haman's grandfather, Amalek, when we came out of Egypt, Amalek attacked. It's a brazen move. B'nai Yisrael was on fire. Everybody was afraid of us, except Amalek. The Torah refers to them as Rishit Koyim. They're the first. And they were willing to jump into the, into the fire, knowing that they're going to get burnt, but just to cool us off. And Moshe Rabbeinu was looking for a general. Who's going to lead the army into war? So who does he choose? Very good, he chooses Yoshua. His student, Yoshua ben Nun. So the Midrash is trying to figure out what qualifications does Yeshua Benun have to fight against Amalek? I read. Velama Yeshua. Amar lo, Moshe tells him. Zekenecha Amar, your grandfather. Who's Yeshua's grandfather? Yosef. Yeshua is a direct descendant of Yosef. Yeshua is from Shevet Ephraim. Yosef, of course, is the father of Ephraim. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, oh, you're perfect for the job because your grandfather said, et ha-Elohim ani When Yosef was in Egypt, he said, one thing I will tell you about myself, I am God-fearing. And if the Torah says that about Yosef, you could trust him. That means he was a God-fearing man. So therefore, what does it say about Amalek? Amalek, it says, Elohim. They're the epitome of no fear. So in order to neutralize the nation of lo yareh, you have to find somebody from the family of yareh. Which means, you fight fire with fire, you fight lo yareh with yareh. So therefore, Yoshua, your grandfather is the epitome of yareh Elohim. And we're looking now to neutralize the nation that has no fear. Let the Yareh come and fight the Lo Yareh. That's why Yeshua was chosen. I read you the Lashon of the Midraj. Yavo ben beno she'amar et ha'Elohim ani Yareh ve'yipara memish she'emar alav ve'lo Yareh. Good. It's a classic Midraj. And I love the words, the Yareh and the Lo Yareh, I mean, perfect stuff. But I got a problem with it. You're telling me that Yoshua is the only one in the whole nation that comes from somebody that has fear of God? 
Anybody ever hear of Avraham Abinu? You remember what God told Avraham Abinu at the end of his life? God is talking, not Avraham. And God says, now I know that you are a Yare Elohim. You're a God-fearing person. So now when Moshe Rabbeinu gets up and says, this is about time, we have a big challenge. We got this lo Yare. Anybody have Yir'ah in their family? Guess what? The whole nation raises their hand. Uh, yes, you. What's your credentials of Yireh Elohim? My grandfather was Avraham. Eh. Anybody else? Yeah, my grandfather's also Avraham. Yeah, it says he was Yireh Elohim, but I mean, there's Yireh and there's Yireh. I mean, we're, we're looking for a different brand of Yireh. I mean, everybody comes from Avraham. I mean, it would be difficult for Moshe not to find a candidate. And nobody qualifies until Yeshua raises his hand. Oh, don't tell me Abraham again. No, 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 not Abraham. I come from Yosef. Oh, what did Yosef say? Bingo. What, what makes Yosef's Yira'ah better than Abraham's Yira'ah? That nobody can fight Amalek. Only Yoshua, the Yareh, can fight the Lo Yareh. What happened to everybody else? That's a strong question on the Midrash. Let's go a little further. Listen, 99% of the times in these classes we answer all the questions. I want to tell you an amazing thing. So when I'm reading Megillat Esther, like any book, there's easy parts of the book and then there's difficult parts of the book. I want to tell you the easiest part of this story. Well, I don't think you even need Rashi. It's just so simple. It's just a basic dialogue between Queen Esther and Mordechai. I'm going to reveal it with you. Now this is the easy part of the class. Mordecai gets wind of the plot of Haman. So he goes to the palace courtyard and he rips his clothes and he's wearing sackcloth and he's screaming on top of his lungs. So they tell, uh, uh, they tell Esther, I mean, uh, your uncle's out there. He thinks it's Tisha B'Av today. These uh, guys uh, looks very sad. Uh, so she sends a message to Mordecai, Lada'at mazeh be'al mazeh. Now what does that mean, Lada'at mazeh ba'al mazeh? She wants to know what's going on. That's logical. So when the messenger comes to Mordecai and says, hey, Queen Esther sees you making a, you know, a spectacle of yourself over here. Mazeh ba'al mazeh. What's going on? And the Megillah answers, Vaisaper la'em Mordecai et kol asher karahu. He says everything that's happening. Basically, he gives uh, the report. Now, could you get an easier dialogue than that? She says, what is going on? And he answers, what is occurring? And he says, Now, this is something you don't see that often. The Gemara is going to explain to us this dialogue. 
a dialogue that needs no explanation, mind you. Now, I'm assuming if the Gemara is going to weigh in and give me analysis of this dialogue, it's going to make things clearer. Now, I don't know how it can be clearer. But somehow the Gemara is going to shed a super light on this. And I, I'm sorry to tell you, when I read the Gemara's addition to this dialogue, it makes it ununderstandable. It takes an easy dialogue and turns it into gibberish. After the Gemara finishes with this dialogue, I have no idea what Esther is saying, and I don't know what, what the, I don't know anything anymore. And I say to the Gemara, what was the matter? It wasn't, it wasn't broken. There's enough things to fix. This was fixed already. What is the Gemara trying to do over here to make things more complicated? And I was, I was so upset. And what, 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 Gemara, there's so many pesukim in Megillah that say that really can get, uh, uh, you know, crystallized. And you picked the only one that doesn't need crystallization. And it went from being a clear window to becoming foggy. And the Gemara just moves on. Okay, next. But you, 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 just, you just ruined the whole puzzle for me. How could you just move on? What does the Gemara say? <clears throat> the Gemara says, Oh, and Queen Esther said, Mazeh ve'al mazeh? The Gemara says, Oh, those, those words sound familiar. Mazeh ve'al mazeh? We have words in the Torah when Moses was giving the tablets. So it says the tablets were on stone and they were chiseled. And if anybody knows how they were chiseled, they were chiseled through and throughout, on both sides. The pasuk says, Mizeh u Mizeh. So the Gemara says, that's what she was asking Mordechai. Mordechai, it looks like the Jews are in trouble. Is it because they are in contempt of the tablets that are written, Mizeh u Mizeh? Are they in contempt of the double-sided tablets? And I'm asking to myself, I got your question. You're asking Mordechai, is it because the Jewish people are committing sins? That's a very complicated way to ask that question. Are they in contempt of the tablets that are written, Mizeh u Mizeh? Just ask, what sins are they committing? What's the Amon? And... If she wants to bring the tablets in, what is she mentioning the feature that they're written on both sides? Why is that, a, why is that important in her question? Who cares how the tablets are written? And between me and you, if a person is in contempt of the Torah, does it matter if the Torah is written on one side or two sides? I mean, if somebody in the congregation, they come to me and say, Rabbi, you know this guy, uh, your friend that comes to the class every day, he eats not kosher, we saw him in a taref restaurant. And I go to the guy and say, hey, uh, Yaakov, they told me you were in a non-kosher restaurant. I don't believe it. No, you can believe it. I might eat not kosher, but I don't lie. I say, but, but, but the Torah. He says, ah, oh, the Torah. And he takes that Torah and says, look, on the back it doesn't say anything. <laughs> I said, but, in, but on the other side, yeah, it's a one-sided book. I mean, it's one, you don't expect me to follow a one-sided law. I mean, that, that's, that's not a reason that you can break the law because it's not written on both sides. And here, Queen Esther is saying, is it because they broke the 
double-sided law, the law of mizeh umizeh. What's that got to do with anything? Whether it's written on one side or both sides. You break the law, you break the law. Why does she mention that feature? I'm confused. I knew what she was talking about. Now the Gemara explains it. Now I don't know what she's talking about. Okay, let's see Mordecai's answer. Now Mordecai's answer is going to be very simple. Yes, they are breaking the law. Which law we'll figure out one day. But clearly this is happening to us because they're breaking the Jewish law. What is Mordechai answer? It should say, Vayomer Mordechai Ken. Ken, that's it. Instead, he tells him, Asher Karahu, all these things that are happening. So the Gebra says, oh, Karahu, that's a buzzword. Karahu. Because on Shabbat, you're going to hear in Parashat Zachor, when Amalek, the grandfather of Haman, came to attack, it says, Asher Karecha. Baderich. He met us on the road. It uses the word Karecha by Amalek. So it says, Et Kodashir Karahu, the grandson of the Karahu. The grandson of Karecha is here. That's a way of saying Haman is attacking. Ben Benoshil Karahu. And I'm saying, hold it. She's asking you, are they committing sins? that are written on both sides of the Luchot. And what is the answer? It's Haman. <laughs> that wasn't the question. The question was, who is it? The question was, what sins are they committing? What Avon on the two sides of the Luchot? And as if, now unless you tell me, no, this is Mossad, that's the way they talk. You know, these are, these are agents here, they can't talk. Uh, they have to be careful, so they talk in sign language, you know. It's a uh, code. It's encoded, encrypted. So he knows what she's saying, and she knows what he's saying. It's one of those. So you got to go into the Mossad catalog and try to get the Morse code to decipher it. Okay, if you tell me that, then uh, fine. You're not supposed to understand it. What's her question? What's his answer? Are they breaking the double-sided law? And he answers back, Ben Benoshil Karao. Eh, the Karao's back. Haman's back. The grandson of Amalek. And she doesn't say, it doesn't say in the Mikirah that she sends back, what are you talking about? The conversation ends there. Yes, we understand very well. So it sounds like we're not understanding tonight more things than we are understanding. All right, now we'll begin to start to unravel. The, we'll start to unravel this. And I'm about to say big hadush. Anybody know the location when Amalek comes to us the first time when we came out of Mitzrayim? So people like to know locations of, of major wars. Anybody know the location where that initial uh, uh, um, war between Amalek and Bnei Israel? Well, the Torah says. So you don't have to guess. The Torah says. I'm going to quote you the pasuk. 
I just, I'm going to tell you the place, if you could just tell me on the map where it is. Because in the Torah it says, Zachor et Hashem HaSadcha Amalek, Baderich. Now, I took out the map this week, and I'm looking, where is this place, Baderich? Now, Baderich means on the way. Now, on the way is not a place. That's, I mean, it's not a location. Now, if the Torah doesn't want to tell me the location, so don't say anything. I mean, for whatever reason, you don't want to tell me where it happened, I don't have to know where it happened. But if you want to tell me the location, then give me the place, the zip code. Instead, the Torah says, it happened Baderich, which uh, on the tennis court, we would call that no man's land. I mean, nobody would be ever able to go to the location and see where this will happen. But the Torah is going out of its way to say, it was Baderich. And if you look at this week's Haftarah, when they're recalling the event, it says, ah, oh, remember what Amalek did to you when you came out of Mitzrayim? Baderich, ma'alotecham meretz Mitzrayim. And I'm asking, I mean, Baderich is not a location. But whenever you see Amalek attack, it always says, it was Baderich. And if Surah is telling it to us, there must be a reason. It wants us to know that that's where Amalek attacks. He attacks on the Derech. What is the Derech? So I have over here a theory from a rabbi called the Magid from Slum. He wrote a sefer called Afiki Yehuda. I'd like to enter this into the, uh, into the official record. So he says something amazing. He says, listen, historically speaking, the Jews as a nation, religiously, fare better when they're in Israel and have a Beta Mikdash. And historically, when they're in exile, over the course of time, exile uh, eats away and chisels away at the core values of the Jew and over time, they, they drift. And the man is right, because when the Jewish people were in Israel at the Beit HaMikdash, by and large, you have Kohanim, we have miracles every day, B'nai Yisrael on a high spiritual level. Galut, exile, it deteriorates the religious fabric of the Jew. You don't need a proof for that. You're in America. Look what happened. 250 years in America to the Jewish people. The melting pot. People are melting every day. The assimilation rate. There's no values anymore in this country. The woke culture. We don't know right from wrong anymore. We don't know male from female. We don't know, we don't know anything anymore. We're scared to open our mouth because it might offend somebody. Cancel culture. It's all going around today. And society is deteriorating in front of our eyes, and unfortunately people who live in this society, the good people, start through osmosis to pick up somebody's bad, uh, bad behaviors or bad thinking or bad ideology or philosophy. That's what happens. And Amalek knows it. He knows that when B'nai Yisrael are on the derech, derech means they're in exile on the way back to Israel. 
But until they get back to Israel, he knows that derech is very dangerous. And Jews have a hard time holding on to their Judaism on the derech. And whenever the Jews find themselves on the road, on that path, trying to get back to Israel, but they're not back there yet, Amalek wedges in, he gets in there. That's his invitation. If that's the case, let's talk about the Jews in Parasu Madai. These are Jews that were living in Israel for 800 years. From the times of Moses, when he took him into Israel, Yoshua Benu took him into Israel, they built the temple. And then what happens? The temple is destroyed and they send it to exile. In the beginning of the exile, they were okay. But then all of a sudden, Bnei Yisrael started to deteriorate very quickly. They're going to the party of Ahasuerosh. Now don't, don't tell me, oh, but there was kosher food. We, we have a hard time in a kosher restaurant guaranteeing the food is kosher. You're telling me in Ahasuerosh's kitchen, the Meshkirin were able to guarantee the food was kosher? They went to the party, nobody cared about the kosher food, nobody cared about the kosher wine. Listen, we're Persian Jews, we're Persian first. And they're enjoying, and they're socializing, and at one point, Haman himself tells the king, Yeshno Amehad. And you know what the word Yeshno means? There is, there's a nation. He was referring to the Jews. Gemara says, don't read it Yeshno. <coughs> read it Yashnu. They're sleeping. They fell asleep at the wheel. That means our enemies were measuring our religious levels and they saw we were sleeping. It was very, very low. We left Israel, we're in exile, we're trying to make our way back to Israel. You know what that area is called? The Derech. And I asked you initially, who invited Haman to the party? You know who invited him? We did. Haman said, listen, I'm not supposed to show up to the fourth exile, but I see Jews on the Derech, and I see them deteriorating. That's my call. He didn't even have to ring the bell. We opened the door for him. That's Haman's invite. Jews find themselves in limbo on a road outside of Israel and they're not serving God like they're supposed to. And my leg says, that's my item. That's why I love that. I'm attracted to that. When I say Jews in exile and they're not following their traditions, it's almost like when I early Jews, even the community, when they came over from the old country to America, and they told them, listen, over here there's no Shabbat, you gotta go to work. And all those traditions of the old country, uh, over here it's different, it's America. Therefore, you know, you have to be an American first. And a lot of people, they fell for it. That's Amalek's invitation. So the question is, who invites Haman? We invited him. Our delinquency invites him. And there's still Jews around today that think like, that, nah, listen, you think Hashem really cares if we're so religious in America? It's, uh... Religion is something for the old generations, the previous generations, not for us. It's a mistake. Where was the Torah given, by the way? Can anybody tell me the location of Matan Torah? You don't know the location because it was also given off-location. 
It's given at Har Sinai. Anybody know where Har Sinai is? Somewhere in the Sahara Desert. Nobody knows where it is, but I know one thing. The Torah was given outside of Israel. Why? I would expect Matan Torah, such a holy event. Give it at the Ma'arat uh, HaMachpelah. Give it at the Kotel. Give it at the Kivet Ahel. I mean, there got to be a holy location. Instead, you give it in a, in, in, in a, in a generic spot called Har Sinai. Nobody ever heard of it. We don't even know where it is. And that becomes the greatest event in Israel. Why would God give the Torah outside of Israel? You know what he's telling us? This law applies just as much outside of Israel as it does is. Nobody should make the misconception if the Torah would have been given in Israel on location, then the people will say, it's an Israeli Torah. When you're in Israel, you got to keep the Torah. They go, oh no. We're going to give it in the middle of the desert, no man's land. And God's saying, the Torah is for here as well. As a matter of fact, I have a Gemara. The Gemara over here is talking about the tablets. Remember I told you about the tablets, a feature of the tablets? They're written on both sides. Why? So listen to the Gemara. The Gemara is in Shabbat 104. There's a rabbi called Rav Hasda. Ktab Shebeluhot, the writing of the tablets, Nikra Mibifnim Venikra Mibahutz. You can read it on the inside and you can read it on the outside. Hold it. Would you use that language inside, outside? I would say you could read it front and back. Or I would say front and front. I don't know which is the front and which is the back. Why does Rabbi Hasda say that the tablets are read bifnim and bahutz? You know what I think he's saying? This law applies bifnim when you're in Israel and it applies just as much bahutz when you're outside of Israel. That's why the Luchot are written like that. To come and tell you. The front of the Luchot represents that direction, across the Jordan, Bibifnim. And the back of the Luchot represents on the other side of the Jordan, Bibahutz. The reason why the Torah is written on both sides, it's a double-sided Torah to say, it applies in all locations, even off-location. There's no place where Torah does not have relevance and pertinence. Now I understand Queen Esther's question. She comes to Mordecai and says, what's going on over here? Is the problem that the Jews have transgressed the double-sided luchot, mizeh u mizeh? Is it because they think the law only applies in Israel? And therefore, since they're in Parasu Madai, they're becoming Persians and they have neglected the Torah that's Bifnim Mibahutz. She sensed that the, the Jews were lagging because they said, eh, we're not in Israel, there's no temple, there's no Kwanim, you can get away with it. So therefore she mentions, are they in contempt of a Torah that's written Mizeh Mizeh? And you know what Mordechai answers? Well, guess who showed up? Haman showed up. So what does that mean? That means yeah. To answer to your question, 
What's Haman doing here? Ben Benoshel Karahu. Karahu is here. Had Karahu get? Karahu can only show up if the Jews are not following the Torah and the Derech. So based on the Gemara, we understand clearly what she was asking, and we understand very clearly Mordechai's answer. He's just as shocked. Yeah, you believe it? Haman's here. We thought we're not going to see him for a thousand years until Galut Romi. And here he is. And Esther says, of course here he is. Because the Jews are on the Derech here, and they don't realize the Luchot are universal. Now what? Now we're in trouble. So Mordechai and Esther said, well, we have to, we have to give, uh, you know, you better start giving speeches to these people and reminding them Torah is just as applicable in America as it is in Israel. You have to be just as religious in Deal, New Jersey as they are in B'nai Birak. There's no difference. You don't say, oh, that's B'nai Birak. No, it's, it's Israel. No. We are the Jews of Mebahuts. And our responsibilities are equal. So Mordechai now needs to resuscitate the people. Now, I don't know what he told them. I wish I did because I would give that speech to our congregation. But whatever it was, him and Queen Esther did such a job on them. At the end of Megillat Esther, it says, The Jews make a reaffirmation in acceptance of the Torah. And the Gemara says it was an event that rivals Matan Torah. And not only rivals it, the Gemara says the acceptance of the Torah that they made in the times of Mordechai and Esther was actually on a higher level than what they did at Matan Torah and Shavuot. That means the Jews came to the realization, yes, we made a mistake. We fell asleep at the wheel. Torah applies in Hotzla Ares. And you got to be religious in New York, and you got to be religious in Miami, and you got to be religious in LA, and you got to be religious even in Bahuts. And they came along and they said, We reaffirm. Can you move the Guess what? The moment they did that, where's Haman? He's on a tree. We revoked his invitation. He has rights to come when we're. When we're delinquent, but once we fix the Avon, that's it. He disappears very quickly. Him and his ten sons on a tree. Gone. Now you don't find it amazing that Jews in exile can be religious? You don't find this a miracle what's happening here tonight? We were in exile for two thousand years. And 99% of the Jews have assimilated. And here as a community, we have beautiful crowd, middle of the winter, and we're coming to study Torah, and God is looking down in heaven and says, look at these people. Where does this come from? Where do we have the strength? We must have a gene of somebody. There must have been a tzaddik who was outside of Eris Israel and was able to hold on to his tradition, and was able to hold on to his fear of God, off location. 
Who was the Sadiq that showed his strength in a place that was hostile to Judaism? It's only one man, Yosef Sadiq. Yosef Sadiq says, Where did he say that? In Egypt. Yosef is the father that's able to bequeath to his children that it's possible to have fear of God. Bahuts. And if the Jewish people in the times of Purim were able to revive themselves and come back to fear of God, you know whose credit that is? You know whose DNA, whose dominant gene started to come out? They got that from their grandfather. Which grandfather? The grandfather that had fear of God off location. Where was Abraham's fear of God? When God told Abraham, now I know you're a God-fearing man. You know where God told him that? He was standing at Mount Moriah on the Temple Mount. <laughs> okay, on the Temple Mount, you have fear of God. Great accomplishment. But we need somebody to inherit us fear of God in Persia. When we're on the Derech, not in Israel. So when Moshe Rabbeinu is looking for a leader to fight Amalek, don't tell me you're from Abraham. Abraham's not going to help us. We need a tzaddik that can have Yirat Shamayim in Chutz La'arez, and that's Yosef. That's outside. It's off the derech. Therefore, Yosef is the father of Purim. If we made our way back on that day when Yosef gave the five garments to Benjamin, you know what he was saying? It's my holiday. I'm responsible, Mordechai, one day, your grandson's going to wear five garments. I am giving you the gift of Purim. Because my religious status and stature in Egypt is going to go through the DNA of B'nai Yisrael, that you're going to be able to survive it. And the genes of Yosef are still around till today. Especially in our illustrious community. We're around today studying Torah like we are. Ken the righteous ladies of our community, and the tzaddikim, the righteous men, that are still studying Torah after all that's happened to us, and all that we experienced. And we're so stubborn, we're not letting go of the Torah and the mitzvot. We say, God, where? In America! With all the woke and all the nonsense, and there's still Jews holding on to the Torah. And the angels in heaven say, where did they get this from? Abraham? Uh, Abraham's in Israel. You need, you need a stronger dosage of Yirat Hashem for this. You need an extra, an extra measure of Yirat Shem. Only Yosef's Yirat Shem. I mean, in Egypt where there was no Jews, there, was no, there wasn't even a Chabad when he was there. There was nothing. He was the only Jew there, and it's a pagan society, and the immoral, Ervat Mitzrayim, everything is stacked against them. And Yosef comes along and says, That would serve his children well in the future generations. And therefore, the original question that I had, who invited Haman? We invited him. Today we have the same problem in America. Anti-Semitism is rising at incredible, incredible levels. I don't know if you heard, on Shabbat they had a day of, a day of hate. Thank God nothing... Materialized, Baruch Hashem. 
But even to talk about such a thing, day of hate, we're not living in Berlin in 1939. It's the United States of America. And everybody's trying to figure out, how do we, how do we uh, solve anti-Semitism? Oh, we got it. Put a guy in front of the shul with a gun. Security. Uh, we're good. Guess what? We all have security. And it's still, it only got worse. What the security? Oh, so we better go to the ADL. They're going to they're gonna solve it. The ADL spent billions of dollars trying to solve anti-Semitism. And guess what? Didn't work. Now, I'm not saying they didn't try, they helped, but obviously it's not working. And we got to deal now with the supremacists and the skinheads and the Nazis and all Amalek. This story tells us they can't come after us unless they're invited. It might explain why our community, Hashem should protect our community, why we're protected. We're living in such a dangerous place and we're protected by and large. It's like we're living in a bubble. There's a war around us. Rabbi Diamond always says there's Asbury, Long Branch over there and Asbury over there. We're in the middle of here. We're living around. We got, we got the, all the... And we're here. We're living in a, in a protected zone. What? Because we tell God we fear you. Amalek is not invited. He knows. They know. They know intuitively. He can't touch us. But once we start to become lax like they became lax in other communities, in other generations, other places, then God forbid. So maybe that's really the solution that we have to learn from Putin. Now's not a time to lighten up on the religion. And we're seeing it, Baruch Hashem, in our community, unprecedented. People are coming back, everybody on their level, everybody proper, slowly, slowly, step by step, everybody's making progress. And that, to me, is the greatest protection that we can have for the community. Because every time a lady becomes a little more, and every time a man, a little more, we keep the enemies at bay. And Borei Olam says, they're making progress, they're following the footsteps of Yosef. And it is my prayer. Just like God made miracles for us, we're the Jews in Hoslades. We're the frontline Jews. We're serving God in the most difficult situations possible. I think of all times. The world is on the lowest level of Tum'ah and we're still holding on to God. Thanks to Yosef HaSadiq. And we pray that just like God made miracles for us in the times of Purim and redeemed us in the merit of Yosef, God will send us Mashiach ben Yosef. And then we follow by Mashiach ben David. And it will be a turnaround. Asher yishlutu ha-Yehudim, Hema b'sonehem, Am Yisrael will rise against the enemies, and at that point will be fulfilled the pasuk, Shoshanat Yaakov sahala v'sameyah, and at that time will say, Arur Haman Baruch Mordechai, Arurim kol reshaim, Beruchim kol atzadikim, Vegam harbona zakhul natov, Amen k'nirazot.